welcome to The Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Today we are going to be exploring the idea, the concept of what is called self-importance in shamanic medicine. I would connect this concept uh, to the idea of what is called spiritual materialism that I've certainly mentioned a few times on previous episodes, and that comes from uh, the teacher Chogyang Trumpa, who is the head of the Shambhala lineage, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And I feel, even though there are certainly some differences between these two terms, they have a lot of similarity, and so I'm going to be weaving them into this this episode and, and exploration today. And I really, I really have gone back and forth on whether to talk about this topic kind of this early on in these series of episodes and this exploration because it is such an intense topic. Um, it's, I think, an especially difficult topic given the way that our society is sort of functioning right now and the way that we have um, conceptualized of human well-being in uh, the modern world, right? I'll explain what I mean in a minute, but it's very difficult, I think, for us to talk about self-importance within a cultural climate that is really constantly emphasizing uh, the importance of identity. And uh, I really hope I don't lose a lot of friends and listeners through presenting this, but um, maybe one of the reasons why I don't want to talk about this right away is because it is so difficult and it's probably going to ruffle some feathers and make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because it really, uh, the way we attend to self-importance and and the concept of identity in shamanic medicine is very, very different than the way that um, modern society is encouraging us to do, at least some aspects of modern society. And so um, I, I suppose I would ask, as you engage with this episode, to listen with an open mind, um, with as much... Uh, how do I say it, receptivity or or just willingness to question ideological frameworks um, just a little bit, okay, or maybe a lot. And, and this might be totally um, mind-blowing, as I think it was for me when I really encountered the reality of this teaching and, and how self-importance was really showing up in my life. Um, and that's what I hope for you. But I will say right off the bat that as is the teaching in, in certain shamanic lineages, um, specifically through the teachings of um, Don Juan as, as offered through Carlos Castaneda, and I'm sure many of you listening to this will think, oh, Carlos Castaneda was a womanizer, and I'm, yes, I'm sure he was not a particularly perfect human being, as we all are not. I'm not excusing what he did or did not do, but I'm just the teachings that came through him were enormous and very important and let's not throw them out because of a a personality we didn't like and again I might be losing friends right away here but these are beautiful teachings and and Don Juan's uh emphasis on self-importance I think is is critical and so critical at this time in our human process because again this like uh, ever-present emphasis on identity and, and you know, the world seeing our identity the way that we want it to. And um, in his lineage, you know, he's, he said that the only thing we really have to look out for on the path to, to the soul self, to power, to initiation, whatever we want to call it, um, is our self-importance. That is the thing that will obstruct the process uh, far more effectively than anything else that could come into our world. So, I think it's good that we talk about this early on. I hope we can still be friends, and I hope that you'll really think about this, you know, as an important concept, okay? But I wanted to start, um, <laughs> although I've already started, but I wanted to start with a story because Brent, my partner, has said, you know, that certainly the episodes feel a lot more entertaining and engaging when I'm sharing personal anecdotes or, or stories on, you know, sort of my experience with these lessons and experiences um, in life. And I also recognize that like 
sitting and talking in a room to myself with myself for an hour, um, I think I might get bored of it. So maybe this is my attempt to be a little bit more humorous and engaging because I don't have a dialogue partner with me in the room. So so I was was thinking about what what stories I could offer in terms of or as a reflection of of how self-importance is played out in my life. And I mean, it was actually quite embarrassing and, and a little bit staggering how many stories came up right away um, with regards to like the the enormous self-importance that I have had in my life and, and how it has really at times co-opted my spiritual and personal growth and, and healing processes. And so I've been kind of going back and forth whether I share with you a, a story of absolute absurdity where you will probably recognize how much of an asshole I have been at certain times in my life or um, maybe a story of, of redemption and um, somewhat more generous sort of reflection on who I am. And I settled on somewhere in the middle, which is a story um, of a time when I was living in San Francisco and of when I had great, great in self-importance self and was completely unaware of this. Um, and I think it paints me as both asshole and slightly redeemed. So we're, we're hitting the middle line here. So at this time, um, again, I was living just below Haight-Ashbury in, excuse me, San Francisco. And I was studying with my primary teacher and she had introduced me to another teacher uh, named Pomo. Pomo was a holy woman from Tibet. She was an amazing healer and teacher, and she was a sound healer, and I think I've mentioned her on previous uh, episodes. She was just a, a beautiful, enlightened, divine human being. She was considered, you know, this sort of holy mother within the Buddhist lineage, Tibetan Buddhist lineage. And she would come down to San Francisco periodically, and we would meet with her, and she would give us teachings and healings and, and whatnot. And so we had actually gathered at my teacher's house. I think there was three or four of us there. And at the end of the session, Pomo had asked us if um, if we would like her to do some prayer work for us. She did a, a special kind of medicinal prayer ceremony. And so she asked us, and she actually had a translator, she didn't speak English, but she asked us to write down our prayers for ourselves, you know, maybe something that pertained to our own healing journey or our personal process and to write it down on a piece of paper and give it to her, and then she would do the prayer work for us. And so at this point in my life, um, I was very consumed by the idea that being a shamanic practitioner was going to make me um, very special and probably famous and really rich, and everyone who um, I wanted to impress in high school was going to be totally impressed by me and maybe everyone, everyone in the world was going to be impressed maybe by me. And so I was really, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I was going to get out of this process, right? And I actually remember, you know, the first time that I engaged or encountered with the idea of uh, enlightenment, I was like, yes, like that's what I want. Like if I have supreme conscious awareness, like everyone in the world is going to totally love me and it's going to be awesome. And so, you know, I'd become obsessed with this idea of becoming enlightened. And I thought, you know, it, it was seemed like a fairly reasonable task. <laughs> Self-importance makes us uh, a little unaware of our limitations and, and capacities, but maybe we'll return to that in a bit. Uh, so I wrote down on this piece of paper and uh, to, for Palmo, that I wanted to be enlightened, okay? And so I gave it to her, finished up the teaching for that night. And I think it was like two days later, um, she had called me and my teacher to meet her at, her cousin had a Tibetan store on Haight-Ashbury. And so we went in there and we were just hanging out and talking and having some food and stuff. And and then I think I, I said goodbye and I walked down to my place and I got home and I opened my bag. I had this fairly large bag. And my prayer note was inside my bag. Pomo had put it back in my own bag while we were together. And so I called my teacher and I said, what does this mean? Like, she didn't mention anything. She didn't tell me why she did this. And my teacher said, oh, oh, I got really excited. Um, this means that your prayer has already been 
taken care of. It means that whatever you asked for has already happened. So, like, I mean, you can't even begin to understand how giddy I was at this particular moment of like, oh my God, like, I'm totally enlightened. It's just, I didn't even know it happened. Like, but I mean, maybe I was just already enlightened because I'd done all so many yoga classes, you know, that like, I obviously have figured something out that I wasn't even aware of and she can see, like, it just, it was unbelievable, the shift in my relationship to to self, to life, to, you know, what was going on in my world. It was like, like I, I almost instantly, I think, donned this sort of beatific smile and was like, I am the Buddha. Like, come rub my belly and and I will bestow upon you the gifts of the universe. Like, it really, it was crazy. It was a really nice feeling, actually, of just like, this calm of of um, total certainty of my capacity and my my perfection, basically. And I mean, maybe this is why Pomo did this. I don't know. I never asked her, but um, the time after this, you know, I can recall as just this very easy, beautiful time in my life where everything sort of went really well, mostly I think because I wasn't thinking about it and I wasn't um, kind of worrying about stuff in my life. And I was planning on uh, going to France and I was doing an internship at a meditation center there. And, you know, I finished up everything in San Francisco, uh, got on a plane to France, got boosted up to uh, first class. And like it, when they told me this, I was like, well, yes, of course, because I'm me and you obviously know that and so does the universe. And then I get into first class and I'm seated beside this kind of head honcho dude from some massive global investment bank. I, I can't remember the name. Uh, super nice guy, you know, offers to give me a ride into Paris in his limousine. And I mean, it wasn't like, oh, thanks so much. It was like, mm -hmm, yes, of course, you know, because that's that's what's supposed to happen, right? And this actually went on for like quite a few weeks. I mean, it was it was like a couple months or so of this sort of experience of even when things went sort of sideways, you know, my capacity to respond to them was totally different because I had this this sense of uh, of certainty in in myself. And so I stayed at this meditation center for a few months and and things started to go a little bit sideways. I think I've shared, you know, I, I got a bite on my leg. I didn't really pay attention to it. Some number of weeks later, there was a bullseye rash around this bite. Cue massive panic. Um, I ended up going back to San Francisco, which I wasn't planning on doing. My teacher was like, you're super sick. You know, we need to attend to what's happening for you. I got Lyme disease. I got incredibly sick. But you know what was the worst part? It was not, I think, necessarily the physical symptoms, which were incredibly uncomfortable, but it was actually my internal psychological resistance to what was happening because it was like, this is not right. I'm enlightened and I'm not supposed to be having this experience, you know? And it was, it was so intense, like this, this, kind of fight almost in my own being with my mind wanting to cling to this quality of self-importance, right, of spiritual materialism, and I'll explain them in just a second. But my body is saying, no, 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 you're just a human being who's like totally sick right now and you need to pay attention to this. But my mind would not let go of this story. And I mean, once I did eventually let go of it and was able to surrender to the process and, and recognize that I definitely was not enlightened and definitely um, had constructed a sort of story about myself that wasn't accurate, uh, then I could do the healing work that was necessary. But it really was um, a time, and I don't think I really even realized it at the time, to be completely truthful. I think it's only in hindsight that I can see what was actually occurring in my, in my mind at that time. But now in hindsight, it's like my self-importance was, was damaging me. And I, I really do think that I got Lyme disease because it was like, hey, you need to be like pulled down from whatever lofty place you have sort of placed yourself on and recognize that like there's still shit you have to pay attention to and there always will be. So 
So yeah, this is, again, one of probably a thousand stories that I could share with you as to, um, uh, or in, with the desire of describing to you how in self-importance has played out in my life, right? Self-importance, what is it? I think there's so many ways that we could describe it. I engage with the idea of self-importance as very simplistically thinking about the self all the time, right? And in a strange way, it doesn't have to be thinking about the self in a negative or a positive way. It can actually be thinking about the self in a negative way, right? And um, I mean, we know from modern uh, brain scans of people who are very, very depressed, you know, you can see what areas of the brain are lit up, what is active in the brain structures. And most of the brain in a highly depressed person is very, very quiet, except for these central components. It's, it's quite a large system of structures that are all connected um, within a, a fairly new uh, system that we call the default mode network. And the default mode network is fundamentally responsible for um, self-referential thought, right? So a thought that has to do with me or who I am in the world or how the world is treating me or how I want the world to treat me or, you know, just it can be involved with um, a lot of other self-based thoughts, right? Or it can just be involved with kind of meandering and, and thinking. But when the default mode network is is focused on the self, um, it that's where our kind of emergent idea of our identity, as I understand it, and please, if you are some sort of neuroscience um, expert, correct me on this, but it's really where that sort of self-concept emerges from. And in a depressed person, that is literally the only part of the brain that is on fire. It's, it's constantly active, right? The depressed person, as sad as this might seem, right, because we know that, you know, a depressed person is probably not thinking about how wonderful they are. They're thinking about the shitty, disappointing parts of themselves, right, but they are still thinking about themselves. And this is really the essence of what self-importance is, is this very identity-focused um, way of engaging with reality that is, it's actually a really new phenomenon in our psyches as as a species, right? Um, I've mentioned Ian McGillcrest a million times before, and I probably will continue to, but he has these new books, The Matter with Things, they're like insane and beautiful and, and everyone should read them. But in the first part of the first uh, ep or, um, edition or episode of it, there is an intro and, and what he says in it is just so striking, you know, that we've spent most of our evolution as a species engaging with the world as mediated through the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere sees the world as relationships, really simplistically. And forgive me if I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating in this sort of context, that the right hemisphere sees the world and engages with the world as a system of relationships, okay? So the right hemisphere is, is not thinking about disparate objects. That is what the left hemisphere does. The left hemisphere sees the world as things, separate things, right? Me, you, subject, object, you know, like separation. It is more focused on understanding the distance between things and how they are different than it is on understanding the interdependent and interrelated qualities of all things in existence, right? That's what the right hemisphere did. That's what we did for millions of years. That's how our brains engaged with life. I really think that that's how most other sentient beings in the world are engaging with life is, or all other sentient beings, they're, they're engaging with life as a series of relationships, right? But the left hemisphere has taken over. And as a result, we are very, very, very focused on things as separate things, right? I'm here, you're there. This is my identity and your identity. Oh, shit, my cat's in here. Give me a minute. Sorry about that. So um, hopefully your brain is going ding, ding, ding. Like this makes so much sense in terms of the way that our modern society is functioning right now, where we're all thinking about our identities all the time. And this is 
uh, it's a tricky subject because it's not altogether a bad thing. It's good to have a sense of identity, but an identity that is experienced as completely separate from the rest of the world, that is not interwoven with the relationship that we have with the natural world, with each other, with uh, the elements, what, uh, you know, the entirety of existence. Um, that is self-importance, right? The, the, the feeling of the self as being separate. And again, this is, this is the only enemy that we have to look out for on our path into initiation, into the soul self, right? It's the, the ego mind taking over the spiritual process. And this is kind of bleeding into the definition of spiritual materialism as it was offered by Chagang Trumpa is when spiritual materialism is when the ego is actually co-opting the spiritual process, uh, the process of coming into relationship and expression of the authentic self, but the ego takes over and it starts to use spiritual practice not as an opportunity for annihilation of the ego because the ego does not want to annihilate the ego. It wants to solidify and retain control. And so it's it kind of it's in its wiliness, it starts to use our spiritual practice like meditation, um, as I was using it way back when I from that story I shared. You know, we use meditation when we're engaging in spiritual materialism, not as a mechanism to still and quiet the mind, but as a kind of trophy, right? Or a, a badge of our commitment and our wisdom or however we want to frame it, right? And generally it's like, I mean, you can hear spiritual materialism and when people are talking like, you know, I, I can't believe my husband's not meditating or my partner's not meditating. It's like, okay, if, if it's allowing you to criticize and feel superior to someone else because they're not doing the practice is a very sure sign that your ego has actually co-opted the practices that are actually meant to annihilate the ego or allow you to at least transcend it and, and disengage from it, right? And so I hope you can see how those two terms are very, very synonymous and, and slightly different. Um, but I think uh, both are incredibly important for us as human beings, okay, modern human beings, because the way that, and again, McGilchrist talks about this, you know, and lots of spiritual teachers talk about this in, with regards to the ego, the way that the ego works, right, it is a it's a set of stories that we constructed in early life, you know, about who we are, what the world is, how we fit into it, right? And those stories are not objective truth by any sense. But the ego is, is self-referential in the sense that it tells its own stories and then believes them and repeats them and then kind of, you know, feeds that back into the the other part of our mind, which I like to call the witness self, but the, the part of us that is authentically us, not just the stories that the mind has in it that can, um, are the, the basis of the ego mind. But when the ego is running us, when our self-importance is running us, we tell ourselves stories, we believe them, you know, and then too, we wire our brain, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, to find evidence for those stories. And we construct our reality in that way so that you know, that's the only reality we will see. And can you, I hope, see how much of a trap that is, right? Once we create a story that that is focused on, you know, our identity, we want to protect that more than anything, right? We, we feel, especially, well, to weave this into psychology, like the the ego mind, the ego sense of self is constructed as a safety mechanism in childhood, right? It's the way that we make sense of the world. We have to do it. That's not an aberration in human development to develop an ego mind. It's just that we're supposed to, I think, designed to transcend it, right? We don't want to get stuck in it. But if the ego mind is is encouraged and, you know, repeated and, and you know, enhanced really by the social systems that we're living in and the culture, as I think is happening in modern society right now, we have no interest in going beyond it, right? We just get stuck on this idea of this is my identity, this is the way I need to be seen in the world, and everyone has to see me this way. And that's not possible, first and foremost. No one's going to see you the way you want to be seen. And it actually, I mean, the tragedy of it, I think, is that it actually creates so much suffering for us because our, our sense of self is based upon a hallucination. To use Alan Watts's words in describing, you know, the ego mind or even the idea of you as, as an identity, right? Who are you? 
where are you, right? I mean, yeah, you have this body, which is made of constantly um, uh, dying and, and being replaced cells, you know, that are turning over uh, at an extraordinary rate. None of the cells that are in your body were there seven years ago. Like you are an idea, you are a figment, you know, and, and not to diminish you. But I think it's very important that we're not making ourselves feel and and need to be more and more and more important and not recognizing the consequence of of doing that you know uh, again like we're all looking at society our children our adolescents right now and saying why are they so depressed why do they have so much anxiety why are they so consumed with their identity and and where they fit in in the world well we've done that right we've allowed the ego mind to actually control us in this way and we've amplified our self-importance and i mean i for one am a little not scared not in a, a truthfully fearful sense um about the future because this is the process we're going through right this is part of our um evolution and maturation as a species but the more that we tell kids to focus on their sense of self, their identity, where they fit into society, how they're different, the same as other people, right? I really think we're doing a, an immense disservice. I think we are setting them up for a lifetime of being stuck in that like need for confirmation from the world around them and thus uh, stuck in a lot of suffering. And I'm going to diverge, but weave it back in because I... It's, I think as a biologist, I, this this shit makes my brain just so happy. But I've been reading this book that I can't believe I have not read before by um, Robert Bly, poet, author, like super genius. Uh, it's called The Sibling Society. And I mean, to be completely frank, like you could just stop listening to all of these episodes and just go read that book and you're going to get way more and just like the most articulate and beautiful information. It's such an awesome book. Um, and it's really about what we're talking about here is this lack of initiation within our species, within our culture, and uh, what we can do about it, why it's happening, on and on, right? So in one of the chapters, though, he's talking about this really interesting um, evolutionary theory that I had not come across pre previous. And I can't remember the guy who came up with this theory. But basically, he said, if you look at the fetus of a, an ape about a month before it is set to be born, okay, so a premature ape baby, it looks almost identical to a full-grown human adult, okay, where the face of the fetus is flat, the face, um, the, the ape's face actually extends only in the last month of gestation um, to get the sort of characteristic monkey face, right? Prior to that, it's flat, just like a human face. Um, the toes on the, the baby are not flexible, like they don't have um, kind of two-way joints, right? Monkey toes can go up and down and side to side so they can grab onto stuff, but a month before being born, they don't have that capacity. Their toes look and, and function just like our toes. And most importantly, what the skull, the sutures, so the seams basically, the joints on, this, on the bones of the skull, are not fused yet in the, the fetus at this time, okay? Human babies, as you probably know, are born with the sutures unfused. The sutures are soft to allow for this enormous amount of brain and head growth that occurs um, post-birth. But monkeys and apes, when they're born, the sutures on their skulls are, are almost completely fused, which means that their brains can't grow that much over their lifetime, right? Which thus means that they can't really accumulate uh, that much knowledge or learning, or they're they're not they're not capable of of developing in the same way that a human being is. And this is true for most animals, most mammal species. But we are born with these very soft skulls that make us very vulnerable, um, but also allow the neocortex, which is that outer layer of the brain, to really expand and. This, this evolutionary biologist has, has proposed, you know, some time ago that we are actually unfinished apes, which I think is like absolutely 
awesome um, because certainly in my biology education, the way that the evolutionary tree is presented to you, it's like, yeah, you know, we came from this and we went to this and went to this and went to this. And we came from apes and monkeys and chimpanzees. And, and now we are this, you know, finished or more, more complex version of them. And it's like, no, actually, we are... The, the ape is the finished version of itself. We are an, an un, incomplete version of that monkey. But that lack of completeness, you know, if, say, out of some random genetic mutation, babies started to be born to monkeys that were, and they were born too early, their brains would have had the opportunity to grow, right? And over millions of years, this allowed our brains, the neocortex specifically, to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the neocortex um, is really, we can think of it as like our higher human brain, I think. It's the place where, you know, really complex thinking can occur, um, uh, thinking that is self-referential and self-conscious, thinking that is rational, um, you know, it's it's able to take in multiple factors and stuff and, and integrate things in a different way. It's thinking that is really planning-based, right? I mean, we can look at other organisms and recognize that they don't do this. They, they, Some animals have a small amount of capacity to do that, but really our brains are, are amazing at this. And it's also thinking that is is about like curiosity and and you know really learning about and and understanding the world, right? And so for millions of years, that's what we used that part of our brain to do was to you know as children when our brains are growing and developing, we were out exploring ponds and salamanders and figuring out how to exist in the natural world, and we were engaging with the world as as an extension of ourselves, right? Uh, to weave this back in, why I think this is so important and so interesting is because Bly makes the the point that we are not using our brains for that kind of um, curious exploration of the natural world anymore. We're using our brains to to instead use that that cortex capacity to turn inwards to look at ourselves, to think about ourselves, our identity, you know, who we are. And he argues that this is making us, it, it almost makes the brain cannibalistic. And when I was reading this, you know, I was thinking about this idea, and I can't remember if I've mentioned it before, but um, when the settlers arrived from Europe on the eastern seaboard of, of North America, it said that the people there, um, there was many different tribes, but the Anishinaabe people and um, I think it was the Algonquin people, they all had a word for a mental virus is sort of how it's described now. And the Anishinaabe people called it Wetiko, other people called it Windigo. But this virus, they said, was the virus of the cannibalistic mind. And it was the virus when, when they saw these settlers coming, you know, to their their land, they were like, oh, shit, like these people are super sick. They are all infected with this virus. And the virus makes you obsessed with yourself, basically, obsessed with what you want. You're, you're turning inwards and you're thinking about what you want and, and what you need and stuff instead of using that that mental capacity to, again, engage with the world or maybe think about what other people or other beings need and what the world needs. And this in turn leads to, I mean, kind of various expressions of cannibalism. On one hand, you know, the the person becomes consumed with wealth and status as Europeans had become, and we all still remain for the largest part, large part. And so we become willing to decimate our natural environment, not seeing that we're actually eating our own body, right? Like that's the one aspect of the cannibalistic quality here is that when we destroy the environment, because we think that we're encapsulated in this bag of skin, you know, that's who we are as this separate identity over here. We don't realize that the earth is our body. It's an extension of and, and expression of all that we are. And, you know, and so we do whatever we want to it, right? And they, of course, saw the colonial settlers doing this. It is also, though, cannibalistic in the sense that when we are so focused inwards, thinking about ourselves, it actually destroys us. 
and they saw this, right? And I mean, apparently they would see the the Wetico virus emerge within their population and everyone would, you know, sort of stop and be like, oh shit, we got to contain this, right? Before it spreads to other people. Because they said it was, it was the most infectious virus in, in the entire world. And hence it spread all over the globe and made us all think about ourselves all the time. Now, this is tricky because I actually think that this is part of our evolutionary process as a species is that we do need to think about ourselves. But how we think about ourselves is really important. And there's a very distinct difference between self-importance where we're thinking about, you know, using this kind of inwardness to think about what we want and what we need and how people treat us and blah, 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 blah. Or we're using the inwardness to find um, our darkness. And this is what initiation is, is this call into darkness, into our inwardness, into places within ourselves that we don't know how to navigate, right? I think that we have uh, an innate capacity and a requirement as human beings to do this work. It's not pretty or fun, and it's not about manifestation and getting what we want in the world, and and hence I don't think it's nearly as seductive as a lot of the, the quasi-spiritual practices that are presented in our culture right now. But if we don't use that inward focus, a self-awareness to look at our darkness, we will instead, it will be consumed by our drive for, you know, focusing on what we want and, and how we think people should treat us. So... I hope that all makes sense as a sort of framing of this idea, right? That that I think we are all we've been seduced by the the ego's capacity to tell us a story and we believe it and to to keep telling us that, you know, happiness is on the other side of identity confirmation. And I can hear the criticisms and the feedback and you know what, please send me some emails. I really don't mind getting feedback at all, please know also, though, that I know that this is accurate and and it is accurate for me. And if you don't feel that it's accurate, then that's fine. But I would encourage everyone listening to really ask yourself, how much of your day are you thinking about you? Are you thinking about what you want, what you don't have, what you want to have, and what what went wrong in your life, and your regrets, and your plans, and your blah, blah, blah. And it's like, when I really, really came into awareness of what uh, role self-importance was playing in my life, and I think I'm very lucky that I, I was brought to this, and I'll explain how this happened in a minute, but... Um, I, it was staggering to me to actually pay attention to how much I thought about myself and and what I wanted from the world, right? And, and I really don't think, um, I am absolutely certain that thinking about ourselves and encouraging others to think about themselves is not the way to happiness nor, you know, a sort of successful, to use that word, whatever you want to frame that as in your mind. But, you know, a successful life as a human being is not found through self-importance nor through spiritual materialism where we're, we're using these practices to, to enhance our importance, right? It's, it's been said, I think, um, I think it was Adyashanti said, you know, enlightenment is actually a, a deconstructive, a destructive process. It is not a process of building the self and getting more money and status and everything else. It is the process of self-transcendence, of being able to go beyond the self, to be liberated by the stories that our mind formed in childhood that are, for the large part, not true, right? And yes, identity is important, and I, I don't know how much to go into this here because I have a whole episode planned for really breaking this down, but all I'll say, I suppose, is that there are different techniques and practices required to attend to the very real pain we have from childhood when our identity was not seen, confirmed, um, validated, you know, held, however we want to frame it, right? Children are perfect victims. They absolutely are, and I will maintain that forever, that children do not have the capacity to choose um, kind of their responses to life for the most part, and and they are at the whim of the world around them, all right? And a lot of damage is done in childhood that must be attended to in a particular way. 
what I believe we are doing is actually carrying the damage of childhood forward into adulthood and expecting that those wounds can be met or fulfilled in adulthood the way that they should have been or could have been attended to in childhood. And that is inaccurate. And it's actually keeping us in a childlike state all the time, thinking, oh, I'm, you know, my way to be happy and healthy as an adult is to get my identity confirmed, because that's what we wanted in childhood. And that's not true. And it's not accurate. And it, it is actually, again, a trap, because the more we do it, the more we think that that's the path, and the more it consumes us, and the more upset we get when the world does not do that for us. And it, you know, on and on and on. And, and I, it's said in, in, Don Juan's teachings, you know, that once self-importance has grabbed you and has got its hooks in you, it is almost impossible for a practitioner to get off that path. And the only reason that I did was um, when my son was born, I, I really, again, did not realize how much self-importance was playing out in my relationship with self and the world. And as soon as he was born, he was a very wound up baby because I was a pretty wound up person, right? I had this, this crushing sense of, which happens to all mothers, right? It's part of the transition into motherhood, but the sense of losing myself, losing my identity. And I remember having this conversation with my mom and I said, you know, I just think I need to go back to work. And I'm one of the very lucky people in the world. I live in a country where we get a year of maternity leave, right? And this is like three weeks after he's born. And I'm saying, I need to go back to work and, you know, I'll put him in a daycare or something. Like I, now it's astounding to me that I was in that state. But it was like this feeling of like, who am I? Who am I? If I'm just, you know, I'm just his mom. Like I, I need to have my identity back, right? And my mom, because she loves me, but she also calls me on my shit all the time turned around and said, you have to stop being so selfish. And of course, you know, as anyone generally does when someone calls them selfish and points something like that out, I was like, uh, screw you, mom. Like, you're just mean and how dare you call me out on this. But I think I have very good guides and teachers and, you know, beings that support me. And they also called my attention to it. And I remember laying in bed and going, yeah. What if it wasn't about me? What if it was about him? What if it was about his needs, you know, and me showing up for that? And I know, like, the fact that I was 35 years old and I was just having this revelation is a little bit sad, but, you know, I'm glad that it happened at all. But it was just like this whoosh, sort of feeling of, wow, like, I don't want to think about myself anymore. I want to think about how I am with other people and how I show up to the world and, and you know, what I want to serve. And it was such a moment of, I mean, kind of breathtaking um, embarrassment uh, in a sense, but also this, this awareness of like, whoa, that's what people are talking about when they talk about, you know, spiritual practice, service as spiritual practice and things I'd heard and gone, yeah, yeah, you know, that's for the plebeians who uh, aren't as special as I am. So I hope that when you listen to this, you understand the reality that, you know, when we become aware of how self-importance is playing out in our life and it's insidious and it's there, I promise you, you'll find it um, because it, it sounds like all the stories that our mind tells us, right, about how we deserve that. I'd say that's my least favorite word, I think, in the English language right now is the sense of I deserve this. Who says, I'm sorry, but like that, that is, and I say this not as like judgment for people saying that, but as like, uh, please don't do that to yourself because the minute that our mind is telling us, I deserve this, you know, we are, we've created a story of how the world must be in order for us to be happy. And that is self-importance, right? And Don Juan said, you know, the thing about self-importance is that it makes it so we have to be offended all the time, right? So anytime you're offended because people aren't treating you a certain way or, you know, because you're not getting what your brain tells you you want, recognize that that is your self-importance keeping you stuck in those old patterns around your identity. And I... I recognize that our civilization does not acknowledge nor affirm identities and people suffer from this. But I would say, and maybe you won't read it or hear it this way, but I'm going to say it anyways, that I care so much about people 
um, being initiated into their spiritual maturity and being liberated from the the patterns that they inherited in childhood that are actually damaging them, right? I really want this for every person and I want it so much that I'm willing to be outed as whatever you want to call me, that I'm a, I'm not anti-anything. Well, I suppose I'm, no, I'm not really anti-anything. Um, but I'm not transphobic, but I don't think that we should be talking to children about their gender identity when they're young at all. Nope, you should be talking to them about how they feel about the streams outside of your house because kids' brains are not supposed to be doing that. That is not what they're wired for. And and I really hope that we're not surprised when all of these kids become depressed later on because we've been encouraging them to think about themselves constantly. But I, I really, as an adult, I am certain you are an adult listening to this, please know that your spiritual growth, healing, transformation is not found on the other side of making demands about the, how the world has to treat you. And I hope that you can hear that with as much loving intent as I mean it and and start to look at what role is self-importance may, having in your life. It is our only enemy. It is the only thing we really have to look out for. And I know that's a big ask because we can say, but look, there's all these people being mean to me. And yeah, I know. And they're going to continue to be there in your lifetime. And, you know, the the pathway to healing is not through demanding that the world be different, but actually through us inhabiting and embodying how we want the world to be and treating other people that way. That's what adults do. And I say that lovingly, but it's what adults do. So so that's, uh, that's what I got for you. And I hope it feels um, meaningful. You're going to, the, the meditation this week, I hope you find entertaining because I love doing this stuff, but it's really kind of an exploration in shape-shifting and allowing yourself to kind of loosen, uh, practice loosening the binds that your ego mind has on you, your sense of, I am this thing, this separate thing over here, right? Um, this is a big part of a lot of shamanic lineages is actually practicing embodying different energies. And you're going to receive a few meditations in this program, kind of exploring these ideas in terms of our relationship with the elementals and, and other uh, spiritual allies and whatnot. But the, the main thing that I want you to experience in this practice is this willingness to, to leave yourself. I mean, I, I think much like, you know, uh, in Shavasana, in yoga practice, right, we're, we're practicing death. And that's not to give it away, but it's going to be our next episode is a real deep exploration of that as a uh, death as our ally and an ultimate friend in this journey. But you practice the annihilation of the self because that's actually what spiritual practice is all about. It's not about getting rich, manifesting shit, getting what you want in the world, right? This is our ego, I, and I will even say narcissistically driven world right now that we are so consumed with ourselves. And it's, I really think it's going to kill us because we're eating ourselves, we're eating the world. And, and if you want to be a part of the shift in this world, I don't think it's by going and attacking other people and telling them that they have to be different, but actually investigating those places in ourselves where this virus has taken hold. It is the virus we're actually fighting. COVID is a hell of a lot less dangerous than this one. So I hope that makes um, sense, you know, or maybe last thought, offer some ideas, you know, around how to undo self-importance, pay attention to it. As I mentioned, you know, it's know that it won't feel nice, feels like shit, because our ego, it, it has to be in control. And it actually will stimulate a nervous system response in us, you know, a kind of flight, flight freeze sympathetic reaction, um, or sympathetic system reaction, excuse me, when it is challenged, right? Because it thinks that it's your safety mechanism, right? And, and its stories are true, and the world has to abide by those stories. And so when that doesn't happen, when we challenge the ego, we feel threatened. And we actually have to practice being okay with that, right? And, and not letting that tendency to be offended all the time take over our minds and our, our way of relating to the world. And so looking at it is one way that you can start practicing um, releasing yourself from the grips of this, this mind virus. You can also practice doing things with great generosity in the world and don't tell anybody about it. 
the performative nature of our world right now is is pretty astounding, right? Where it's like everybody has to to tell everyone about things that they're doing and actions they're taking, you know, and and that even though I know you can make the argument of like, oh, it'll encourage other people to do it. Eh, I don't think I agree. I honestly think that it's just about enhancing our self-importance. If you really want to go and help someone or something or the world, go and do it and don't you don't need to talk about it. You don't need to tell someone. Do it unseen and see what it feels like, right? Because you're going to come into contact with <laughs> some part of your self-importance. It's like, oh, I should post about this and talk about it and show the world what I'm doing, right? Maybe you don't. Maybe maybe instead find a different sensation in that experience of just helping just being generous without being seen, right? And just notice, you know, how much of your world, again, are you are you spending, you know, thinking about yourself, either in a negative or, or a positive way? And if you're if you're depressed, recognize that that's I know it's hard to hear, but that is the basis of it, right? And we don't get out of depression through thinking more about ourselves. We get out of depression by utilizing the brain differently and emphasizing, you know, observations of the world around us, being in nature. We know from clinical data this is very appropriate for people being depressed. It, like, gets us out of our own heads, right? The answer's not in there, I promise, unless, unless you're looking at your shadow and finding all those dark parts that feel like shit also, so... If you're doing that, go for it. But uh, yeah, that's not self-importance. So I hope this is helpful. And um, I look forward to coming back here again very soon. So please take care of yourselves. Please tell me if you hate me. Um, I'm okay with it. You can send me an email. But again, probably understand too that I'm not going to change this position because um, nope. I don't want to live in a world where we are all consumed by our identities constantly. It's it's not where I want to be. And I hope you can understand that. So uh, all the best and I'll be here soon. Bye. The Knowing is an IntelliKey production was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Northern Sequipnik people. All music, editing, and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. May we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is.